Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Tuesday night edition of Nightlight. We're kicking off Halloween month with a captivating return guest. Uh, tomorrow night you get uh, Arlen doing his review of the Black Panther movie. Uh, so uh, that, that'll keep you informed for uh, two hours tomorrow night. But um, uh, let's see, we're. <laughs> Where we start? Uh, I think there needs to be a comment made about uh, yesterday's show. Um, you know, it could have been uh, more guests on the show than we realized. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we have, you know, they're going to show up again tonight. I don't know. Are they spirits? NSA? I mean, you know, we covered that last week. And it's not wouldn't be surprising if. Uh, they started monitoring us. Uh, uh, Barbara, do you want to step in here and explain <laughs> explain what happened? I, I was not the heavy breather yesterday, so yeah, that's what we're trying to figure out. So that wasn't me. Well, um, we we had a lovely show with uh, Reverend Bill McDonald, who's a very spiritual, uh, gifted, talented man, and it was a wonderful show. We had a great time and. After it was all said and done and we said our goodbyes, we talked a little bit after the show, and then I downloaded the show and uh, edited it a little bit and made a movie of it and put it up on YouTube and sent it to him and, and Mark. And, you know, I, moving forward, and uh, I got a call from uh, Reverend Bill, and um he said there's somebody breathing heavily on the show. And I couldn't figure out who it could have been because Mark pulled him in. And I know Mark doesn't breathe heavy, really. And I wasn't breathing heavy. And I went and I listened. And indeed, there was heavy breathing on the show. And um, <clears throat> if it had been either of the two men that were on the show with me, I would have heard it and told whoever it was to either stop breathing or 
you know, move their microphone or whatever, but I didn't hear it during the show. And the further we got into it, the stranger it became because apparently um, this has happened to Reverend Bill before, and it recently happened to him um, during the show that he did a day or so before he did Nightlight. And when Mark looked at uh, his Skype account to see who was on the call, it registered four callers, but there were only three of us there. So we don't know who, (laughs) how, or what was there. And uh, I still can't figure it out. I can't make sense of it. And uh, that's what happened yesterday. Mark? I have no explanation for that. I was trying to figure out, you know, it didn't really appear during the show. It was the the breathing showed up on the archive. So I I was like, one of the archive technicians uh, running a marathon uh, before they came in to work. Nope, that's yeah. all automated. It couldn't couldn't be that. And <clears throat> it's over both of us talking. So uh, I have no explanation for it. I, I, I am not even going to go to the point that it's a spirit because, let's be honest, spirits don't breathe. So it had to be... <laughs> uh, it had to be a physically... A physical person, it's not a spirit and it's not a demon and it's not not that because non-corporal entities don't breathe. So you don't get the heavy breathing. So it had to be a human. And um, can't figure out how, who, or whatever. So we're going to be fascinated to see if we have a heavy breather with us tonight after you guys get done talking. (laughs) Yeah, well, and it sounds like we can rule out the English blog talk robo babe. So, I I don't know. There's, and also Jeff uh, isn't Jeff. So could, you know, yeah. Could, if anybody has any ideas, you know, please let us know. Um, Je- Jeff has last... made some. Jeff's made his presence known after having. Tim Swartz as a guest, so it's a mystery. A number of times, a number of times. Yeah. But this, this is this is very unusual. It's it's on uh, last night's show. That would be the show on the fifth with uh, Reverend Bill McDonald. Anybody listen in? It happens in the very beginning of the show, and it it does sporadically happen throughout the show and at the very ending. So, anybody have any ideas? Let us know because. We'd love to solve this mystery, and and um, Mark has the screenshot of the fact that after the show there were four of us in on the call, and there were only three of us there. So, go figure. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, in the meantime, you've got a great guest tonight. Yeah. And I've already and... already talked to him, and he's not a heavy breather. No. <laughs> so uh, I. Yeah, uh, this might be something out of a uh, you know Lovecraftian uh, prediction of how technology was going to work and 
connects us to other dimensions. I don't know, but we'll, we can ask the expert. Um, Good idea. Yeah. Okay. So let's see. Uh, Dave God's word was a guest earlier this year. I think he's on in April uh, to discuss his sun, sand and sea serpent book that had just come out. Um, tonight we'll be discussing an, an, you know, a little bit older publication, get a sneak peek at, a soon-to-be-published book on northern sea monsters and uh, probably re- review a couple articles on mysterious petroglyphs in the last and the current edition of Ancient American Magazine. So uh, tonight's one of those you know, kind of like career retrospective type shows uh, and if you want to learn more about Dave, and who doesn't, you can visit his website, godsword.com. That's G-O-U-D-S-W-A-R-D. Hi, Dave. How are you? Hello, hello there. I'm a little creeped out, but hello. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, we were a little creeped out yesterday, too. But, uh, yeah, we're... Uh, it's it's kind of like, you know, uh, the Orson Welles movie, you know, The Third Man. Everyone wants to try to figure out who the third man, uh, you know, was at the scene of the crime. And, you know, we're dealing with the fourth person here. So it's, it's like the same thing. Uh, well, it as, would have been a shorter movie if he had been an asthmatic like last night. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is. It was something unusual, but um, uh, yeah. We'll, how about if uh, we we start looking at these, you know, go from one mystery into the mysterious petroglyphs, and then we'll you can uh, uh, creep us out with uh, your H.P. Lovecraft in the Merrimack Valley, and if we have time, we can get into more sea serpents towards the end of the show. So, um, you know, so you, these so last my favorite two are... Part, this is my favorite show, by the way, uh, because oh. I never know where we're going and how we got there. Uh, okay. Uh, how much do I owe you for the compliment? Oh, no. this uh, I, I need to do more of these shows. This is practically stream of consciousness to me. No, I... I, I, actually, I, I'm sitting here with like eight pages of notes from your book. So I, um, I, I'm actually organized. It, it's <laughs> it, it's just trying to fit all this into two hours, and um, you know who, who knows where we're going. But yeah, it, it it is becoming a stream of consciousness type type show. But <laughs> you have. Uh, you know the the first two parts of what a three or four part series in the last Ancient American magazine and the current one, and uh, those are editions one twenty seven and one twenty eight. You know, you're looking at these 
uh, possible old world petroglyphs in New England, or <clears throat> you're uh, exposing some people looking for their 15 minutes. You know, we covered that last week with mm-hmm. Kathleen Martin. Yeah, uh, there are those people out there uh, uh, looking for attention, seeking, you know, the limelight. Um, so, Dave, well, it, we. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think how to up, how to how to jump into this one here. It's a four part series, um, okay. as you said. Four part. Uh, you've 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 got the first two there. There's two more parts coming. The next issue, which I believe is November December, mm-hmm. yeah, that will be on uh, Monhegan Island, which has uh, supposedly has runes on it. And then the next issue of that after that will wrap it up with what I call portable rune stones, small odd stones that have just been quote-unquote discovered and then misplaced over the years. To go back to something you said initially, I don't think in this case these are actually deliberately looking for 15 minutes of fame. This is, for instance, William Goodwin, who bought and made famous the Mystery Hill site, America Stonehenge, up in Salem, New Hampshire. He wasn't looking to be famous. He was looking to find where Vinland was. That's what everybody wanted to do. That's why you have sightings of Vinland everywhere from Newfoundland down to Cape Cod. In fact, there's a couple of cases that say the Vikings made it all the way down into Mexico, and Quetzalcoatl was a Viking. We'll we'll skip that for tonight because that's about a three-hour spit-fueled rage on my part. Um, (laughs) Okay. But the the four-part series is really about what I refer to as lost runestones or lost runic inscriptions. They're not lost necessarily in the physical sense. Uh, for instance, the first issue on No Man's Land Island. You can't misplace an island. But the rock that was on the island has washed into the ocean and it may or may not have been legitimate the first place so the translation is awfully neat it's awfully convenient and now the rock is underwater it's a lost stone the second issue covered a couple of really oddball pieces Um, all of these sites in the second part are in what are now called the parker wildlife management area which is in North Shore, my home, away from home, um, Newbury, Byfield, Newburyport area, uh, basically the river, Merrimack River mouth. And at that time, it was still active farmland. And in one of these fields, a hunter came across a stone left over from the glaciers and thought it had carvings on it. He jotted down what the carvings looked like to him and then sent a copy of it to the New England Historical Genealogical Society, who published it mostly as a a space filler. And that's as far as it went. However, one of the people who read a particular journal was John Greenleaf Whittier, who was writing a poem making fun of Cotton Mather, 
who believed every tale he was told. So if there was a two-headed snake in Newbury, he believed it, and he wrote about it. If he heard that there was a bear tap dancing down the main road of Boston, he believed it. He put it in the book. Well, Whittier's poem is making fun of the the two-headed snake of Newbury. And he mentions this snake can be found sunning itself here or there or at the Norse rock. Up until then, nobody had said this rock was Norse. Nobody had said it was Viking. That's just something Whittier pulled out of thin air. That immediately made it more interesting to the the public the population because Whittier was still a a big name literary figure. They couldn't find the rock again. And it turns out the rock had a ledge on it that collapsed and hid the inscription if it was ever there to start with. But he, he's the only one who ever said it was Viking. Now, if you read this series, there's one name that keeps showing up over and over again, and it's Olaf Strandwald, who was a retired superintendent of schools from Proser, Washington, out in the Northwest. And he apparently fancied himself fluent in translating runes. Spoiler, no, he wasn't. He could translate any rock and make it sound good, even if it had absolutely nothing to do with Vikings or runes. He met William Goodwin because Goodwin was actually looking to invest in Oak Island at the time. And Strandwald was translating the Yarmouth runestone. He got it wrong again. Um, but they they met that that point and love um Goodwin was actually starting to accumulate all these sites sort of as a network to match up to his theory. He had bought the America Stonehenge site assuming it was Viking and had then decided it was ninth century Irish Catholic monks escaping the Vikings. And as he finessed his theory, he started finding all these other stone structures and carvings. Now, his theory was dependent on the monks going out to become missionaries and following all the Indian trails. So that's where the Irish ruins are. The fact that they're on Indian trails does not strike him as an odd coincidence. Strandwald starts getting called in to translate some of these stones as he finds them. And even Goodwin is beginning to get suspicious after a while at some of these translations. And finally, Goodwin and his sidekick, Malcolm Pearson, are called to Rowley, Massachusetts, and they look at some carvings. And then on the way back, they stop in Byfield, Massachusetts, which is Newbury, And they look at the stones in Newbury, and they say, these are plow strikes. This is a metal plow hitting a rock and keep going. You've got straight lines. You've got angles where the rock shifted under the weight of the blade. There's nothing here. 
Now, this is William Goodwin, who thought the rocks on top of Mystery Hill were an, a ninth century Irish monastery. If he says it's not legit, you can probably lay money on it. Strawnwald gets wind of these stones in Byfield and says, I'm going to translate them. And Goodwin says, don't do it. And Malcolm Pearson says, don't do it. You're going to make yourself a laughingstock. These are plow strikes. And that's where Strandwald splits away from Goodwin. And it had been a fairly good working relationship at that point. Goodwin had paid for Strandwald's first booklet on runes in New England. And that was the split. Strandwald translated all these stones and became a laughingstock, just as predicted. His theory was that these stones were Christian burials of Vikings. So that his translation of the Whittier runestone matched up to this. He had, by this point, translated Whittier's carvings as proof that there was a shipwreck off the coast of Newburyport, and the Viking survivors had come ashore, and they had carved the Whittier stone as a beseeching to God to get them out of this frozen wasteland. And just in case God wasn't listening, they wrote it a second time under that beseeching to Odin and Thor. You know, cover your bets. Mm-hmm. Strandwald is basically saying those survivors stayed in the area and became Christian. And as they died, they were given Christian burials. Now, there, there, are, there are two problems with this theory. Three, if you include the fact that they're not actually carvings. One, who Christianized these Vikings? And two, fellow who owned them had actually been collecting them over a large area. If he was out hunting or fishing and he saw something with marks on it, he'd bring it back home. So what Strandwald thought was a burial area, a small graveyard, was actually a collection of stones that had come from a 6,000-acre area. So there was no context either. That's as far as it ever went until Charles Michael Bolin published his book, They All Discovered America, which was the first bestseller suggesting pre-Columbian Europeans. And he took the extra step, and he's saying Goodwin's monks hated the Irish, the, uh, the Vikings, because they kept chasing them away. So when they came right. across these shipwrecked Vikings, they captured them and kept them down in that area where they could keep an eye on them and converted them to Irish Catholicism. So they're responsible for these Catholic symbolisms on the stones. Well, one, if that theory had any water whatsoever, Mystery Hill isn't, isn't an Irish Catholic monastery. Two, assuming the monks did convert these Vikings to Christianity, why would they write it in runes? They would have written it in medieval Latin. 
And three yeah, is the same sense. problem. These stones have nothing to do with each other. You know, one is picked up from the um, swamps to the left. One is picked up in a field over there. One he finds on a stone wall by the orchard. He's putting them all together. So, again, but the, these sites never quite go away. In this case, they did because they bulldozed the farm apart and built condos over it. But it was just the sort of thing and Strandwald wasn't looking to become famous and national. If anything, he did more damage to his reputation than anything. So again, if he got his 15 minutes, it didn't last. That's for sure. And then you got smart Alex like me out there who are making fun of him all the time. So can't wait to see what they say about my stuff in a hundred years. Dave, you know, there needs to be a healthy skepticism too, and you know, uh, pointing out that some people's supposed facts just don't add up. That's that's fair. Yeah, that's fair, and it, it, part of it is because they're working with what they had at the time. No, uh, to, to go back to poor Mr. Goodwin in his Irish monastery, he bought it because he thought it was Viking. He had decided Vinland was actually Portsmouth Harbor up in New Hampshire. Then it became Irish. Those were really the only options he could come up with. This is, you know, 50 years before Barry Fell comes up with Celt Iberians and Basques in the New World. So if... Goodwin bought the site in the 1960s, it would probably still be Viking to start with, but there's no telling what direction it would have evolved. I mean, that site changes every time you go up there. It depends on who's running the operation, what they've discovered lately. And I I don't work up there anymore. I spent about... Uh, Oh, God, it must have been 20 years doing historical research up there. And I have no clue as to who built anything. I went up there not knowing, and I left not knowing, and I still don't know. And I've written a book about the site, and I still don't know. So healthy skepticism sometimes doesn't lead to anything either. Okay, and uh, Scott Walter and Josh Gates were out to the no man's Land Island as well, and what uh, they're documenting uh, is, is it two different stones? Uh, well, they were two different visits. Um, so, and one was uh, they weren't they were a couple of years apart, and I don't know. No man's land was originally a private owned island by a fellow named Joshua Crane, who was a Obviously, money. He owns a private island. And there was a gentleman who worked for the British government in Boston at the time when everybody was talking about the Vikings were in New England. This is the time period when you get the Leif Erikson statue in Boston and the Longfellow Bridge across the Charles with its Viking prows at the waterline. This fellow's name was Edmund Gray, and Gray's idea of research was go up to somebody who lives 
on an island because they all hang out together. You know, he's he's an embassy employee. This guy's a millionaire. They hang out at the same parties like we all do. <clears throat> and point blank, ask Joshua Gates, not Joshua Gates, Joshua Crane. Now you've got me doing Gates. Um, have you seen any carvings, any, any strange marks on your island? And Crane says, no. And Gray goes on to the next, you know, goes down to the Cape and says to this guy on the see any strange markings? Well, Crane was a practical joker and apparently found a book on Crane, on um, runes and wrote Leif Erikson was here and the rune date on a rock on the shoreline. And the next time he saw Gray, he said, you know, I think I did find some carvings. Gray goes rushing out there. There it is, written in plain letters, very plain, which is a red flag, Leif Erikson. He takes the photographs, he chalks it in, he takes more photographs, and he publishes his book on the Vikings in New England. And Crane never lets on that he made the whole thing up. And this is the key component of this poor man's book. Well, that part of the story never really got out. And the Cranes stopped going to the island as much and leased it to the military who used it for target practice at the Weymouth Air Station. So come the end of World War II, this island is covered with unexploded bombs. Some of them were just, you know, test, but they were actually doing explosive ordnance as well. So needless to say, Crane had no problem selling it to the government cheap. And to this day, they still find unexploded ordnance out on that island. It is such a bad cleanup job. They did what they could, but people can't go there. It is a bird sanctuary. It is a federally protected piece of land. The birds don't set off the bombs. The people do. And people keep going back looking for this rock. And Josh Gates and um, particularly went to the town. I had to stop and think what town this is part of now, because it actually, even though it's not inhabited, it it does have a jurisdiction in Massachusetts. Everything has a jurisdiction. He got permission to go out there from the, the town, but he still had to get permission from the wildlife people. And they didn't get it. They also, that's why they go to the island. They dive off the island, but Josh Gates isn't on the island. He can't get permission to land. So the rock that he finds is different from the one that Scott Walter finds a few years later in that we can't tell if it's the right rock or if it's the same rock. The coastline has been eroding away. The rock has rolled into the deeper water. It's only available during very low tides, so it may or may not be the rock. Scott Walter went on the shore. I, I assume he got permission, and they actually did find some ordnance. So that's always fun on your little adventure. 
but they haven't proven that that is the right rock. It could be. It may be in deeper water. It may be buried in the sand. They're not going to be allowed to dig, and you know why. Kaboom. But does it really matter? Since we know it is almost certainly a hoax. That's a lost runestone, and as long as there's explosives in the discussion, I think it's going to stay lost. <laughs> it, D- Dave, is uh, Chilmark the name of the town? It, it could be. To, be. to be honest, I'd have to pull out the article, and you have it there, and I don't. Yeah, uh, you say uh, visiting the runestone remains complicated and expensive. Any visit needs a filming permit from the town of Chilmark. Clearance yes. from Massachusetts. Okay. For, yeah, okay. Chilmark. Okay. <laughs> and Chil- Chilmark makes a lot of money off of these things. So, because you you can't stay out there, you have to rent a shallow boat. So you've got to rent a local boat, and they're marking things up. You have to have hotels and restaurants and everything. So they love letting people film. They just aren't crazy about letting people blow up on an island. That's bad for the Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, but you do have a um, very scenic aerial photo of the island in the article. Looks like a yeah, nice it's, place. It's a or very it's... pretty island. Now, I mean, at one point, the colonists were going out there and actually had field stripped it. It was literally a bare rock so they could build, uh, grow a cash crop out there. And the cash crop was sassafras. The English crazy about sassafras. It was a, it was like aspirin. You could cure anything with sassafras. So they couldn't grow the stuff fast enough. So they just stripped the island you plant the sassafras, you leave it alone till harvest. You don't have to go out there. There's no, there's nothing out there to eat the, the plant. And as long as you don't have a storm and the salt water comes up and kills it, you come back to, twice a year. You go out and plant it. You come back and you harvest it, and then you sell it for a high profit to England. So it was bare for years and years and years, and that's why Crane bought it, because it had a gorgeous view from all directions. But there was a little village out there supporting the Crane estate. And, you know, they had servants' quarters, they had the house, they had the wharf, he had his own yacht. And before he bought it, they had attempted to put a colony out there. So there are actually things like this is the cellar hole where the school was type of a thing. It's all mm-hmm. under it's all under a healthy crop of forest now. The forest comes back healthy. When the army gave it to the state, they they both spent a lot of money cleaning up what they could. They got as much of the toxicity off it, as much of the bomb as they could, and they cleaned it up and the birds came back and the trees came back and it is a gorgeous little island. It's just the one island in New England that's most likely to kill you. <laughs> and this is after okay, Jaws uh, on Martha's Vineyard. Okay, so uh, that, that, uh, that was my question. Uh, 
uh, this no man's land island is uh, very near Martha's Vineyard? All of the islands are close to each other. I believe you can okay. see I, from the okay. from the west end of Martha's Vineyard, you can see no man's. And that's one of the reasons the army started having complaints about the the tests out there, because the rich folk were living on the West End, and it was disturbing their cocktail hour to have things exploding on the island next door. Man, if I had a dollar for every cocktail that's been ruined by an explosion. But, I mean, it's not close enough you could swim or row out to it, but it's close enough that you can see it. Okay. All right, so just give the listeners a general idea of where it's located. Okay, it's um, yeah. I I personally yeah. find mentally placing the islands of Cape Cod is very difficult. Even even looking at a map, you don't realize, for instance, how big Martha's Vineyard is until and then you get there and it's it's not big at all. The, there's built-in distortions on the maps. So, but it, it's, yeah, it's a very pretty island. It just happens to be loaded with Deadly. bombs. Yes. Not to mention okay. a federal offense if you get there because of the uh, wildlife sanctuary. Okay. So, thank you. Uh, it gave us uh, a... Um, a good, good summary of what was going on in this um, depopulated island. It, 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 it's an intriguing story. You, it, it's very uh, thoroughly researched and you know, presenting both sides. Is it real or a hoax? hoax all the people involved. It, it, it's uh, yeah, I look forward to the December and March, April uh, editions whenever uh, they, they they come out. It, it, it's really a very intriguing series you got started on. Yeah, so, I, 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 I honestly don't know what I'm going to do next for Ancient American. This uh, this is this four part, and of course, I did a piece on the Cacapontet Runestone. Previously, and I, I'm kind of mm-hmm. stuck in the that. files. Okay. So, oh, oh, um, okay. S- speaking of killer islands and uh, near the area where Jaws was filmed, uh, that's a nice segue into your. Um, it's it. It's a biography uh, entitled uh, Lovecraft in the Merrimack Valley. Uh, I'm not an expert on uh, Lovecraft. I think I read one of his uh, short stories in a science fiction fantasy class I had in college about 30 years ago. And I know a couple of his short stories were developed into – uh, night gallery episodes. Mm-hmm. He, he's j- j- just a huge influence on uh, 20th century American authors. 
Um, so what got you interested in Lovecraft? And we kind of delve into the book from there. Well, that's, there, there are two components to that story, and I'll do the easy one first, mostly because I'm still trying to figure out how to explain the second one. Um, I was the general manager at America Stonehenge for several seasons, mm-hmm. and this is the same time that the very first Necronomicon, not the current convention in Providence, but the first attempt at one was taking place. And the first ones were taking place in Danvers. And we were getting tourists coming up, wanting to see the, you know, where Lovecraft, and I don't know anything about this. And if I have one character flaw that I'm willing to admit to anyway, it's I don't like not knowing something that apparently I need to know. So I did a crash course in Lovecraft and whether he could have visited Mystery Hill, Sacrificial Table, America Stonehenge, before he wrote his story, The Dunwich Horror, which features a hilltop of stone ruins and an altar stone. And it intrigued me. It remains intriguing because I can't prove it. I can I can make a really strong argument for it, but I can't prove it. It's one of the there there are despite the fact that he wrote over a hundred thousand pages of letters in his lifetime, there are gaps. And that particular visit is in one of the gaps. Could he have visited? Yes. In fact, I can tell you when I think he did. It was June of 1921. He had just taken the train up to Plastow, New Hampshire, the Westville train station, and was met there by an amateur journalist who he knew through the Amateur Press Association named Myrta Little, who lived in Hampstead. So they went to the house, and of course he absolutely loved the house. It's a colonial house. It's unrestored. But the rest of that day doesn't show up in the letters. And Myrta Little's house is only about two and a half miles from America Stonehenge. Or at that time it would have been called Patty's Caves. Mm-hmm. So there's ample time for them, for him to, you know, drop off his luggage, um, refresh, have a quick lunch. They get in the car, they drive down to Route 111, down Route 111 to Haverhill Road, park on the side of the road, and take one of the various lumber trails up. It was wide open at that time. Goodwin hadn't bought it. And uh, there would have been a four and a half ton carved flat stone sitting on top of a pile of rubble that looks like a sacrificial table. It's got the groove all the way around with a drainage runnel off the side. Right. And 
it would not be a long trip because there wasn't much to see up there in those days. Everything was either overgrown or collapsing. So it would have been go up, visit the stone, go back to the house. And the next day he continues merrily on his way down to Haverhill and visits an amateur publisher by the name of Tryout Smith. And that day is very well documented. So it looks awfully promising as a potential for me. But I, I suppose I should start by what the Merrimack Valley is. Okay. And if you look at a map of the north area above Boston, you'll see that where New Hampshire meets Massachusetts, it's sort of an odd little upward thrust. And that's because the state line follows the Merrimack River. And the lower Merrimack River Valley is the area that Lovecraft was visiting. So Haverhill, um, Plasto, New Hampshire, North Salem and Hampstead, his interest was in Newburyport. But he did visit that whole area repeatedly. So it's it's a very specific area. And more importantly, well, to me anyway, I don't know about your listeners, we can trace his journeys very clearly. We know what, when he went there, how often he went there. That first visit, I said, that was in uh, June of 1921, was only a two-day. But it was a significant two-day, first of all, because he met an amateur publisher that he knew for years. And Tryout Smith is very important into the development of Lovecraft as an artist because Tryout Smith is where Lovecraft published all his poetry and started getting involved in organized amateur press. So it's where you start seeing him becoming an active participant rather than a passive reader. But we also know he came back in August of 1921, and he was met at the Haverhill train station by Myrtle Little and her family, because, you know, young ladies did not meet gentlemen at the bus or the train. And they went to visit Tryout Smith. They did not meet Tryout Smith because Tryout Smith was taking a nap and didn't hear them. And he was stone deaf to start with. So instead, we know they went to Winnie Kinney Castle, which is a Fieldstone Victorian folly in town. We know they went to the Historical Society. This is all stuff we know about from these visits because it's, it's, he was such a proficient letter writer. We know he went to Amesbury one time because it was too late to go to Newburyport. He goes to Newburyport. It becomes one of his favorite cities. So much so that he would often go up to Newburyport and then visit other towns, ending up in his favorite places like Marblehead and Salem. But all of these places to show up in the stories. And there is a specific set of his stories that are inspired by or set in the Merrimack Valley. You have things like the, uh, the Dunwich Horror, which, of course, sacrificial table on top of a mountain. You have a statue in Haverhill to Hannah Dustin, a a colonial folk hero. He mentions that in a history of the French and Indian Wars. 
not even fiction. This is a, a, a historical biography he wrote of the city of Quebec. The Shadows Over Innsmouth, probably one of his most famous stories. The narrator goes to Newburyport. He stays at the Newburyport YMCA. He visits the Newburyport Library. He visits downtown Newburyport, meets Market Square. The description of Market Square is almost identical to the real one. He gets on a bus that's going to go down to Innsmouth. And Innsmouth was actually description-wise Newburyport as well. The the parts of Newburyport he loved, the, the stately Georgian mansions and the cobblestone streets, that's Newburyport in the story. The parts he didn't like, the ramshackle little clam shacks clustered along the edge of the clam digging area, that became Innsmouth, the decrepit little town fishing village. Dreams in the Witch House, the character who is the protagonist, is from Haverhill. He attends school in Haverhill and then goes to Miskatonic University which, as we all know, is a bad thing. And then his final major story, The Shadow Out of Time. It is a character named Nathaniel Peasley who was raised on Boardman Street at Gold Gold Hill in Haverhill. Boardman Street at Gold Hill is where Tryout Smith lived. Nathaniel Peasley is the name of a gravestone in the burial ground from the colonial era. He marries a girl named Kizar, maiden name, who is also a stone in that cemetery, and then goes to Miskatonic University, and again, bad things happen. These are these are actually major stories of his that involve the Merrimack Valley, and they are all influencing the stories. And yet he's still considered a Providence author. So it's it's a mix of the combination. And you could go on and on, and I have been known to, uh, about the influences. And there are some delightful little tidbits in there that don't make sense to anybody who hasn't read the story or, or can tune me out, which apparently some people have been known to do that too. Um, but for instance, he's the character in In's Mouth, uh, the shadow over his mouth, is in Newburyport, and he wants to see an exhibit at the Historical Society. So the librarian gives him a note of introduction, which he takes to Anna Tilton, who is the curator of the society, who lives nearby, and she opens the closed building so he can tour it. Well, Lovecraft went to the Haverhill Historical Society. It was closed that day, but Myrta Little is a descendant of two Declaration of Independence signers. So she's blue blood. She also can go up to the door and get into the closed building. So he's he's even taking specific events from his travels and integrating them into the story. Dave, I think you have an effective approach to the way you set up 
um, H.P. Lovecraft in the Merrimack Valley. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a biography of Lovecraft, but it, it is pretty much just r- related to his, his friends in the Merrimack Valley, uh, the places he saw, you know, like uh, what you were just saying with uh, uh, the old homes that uh, appear in his short stories. It, you know, it, it's uh, a, a book that's just under a couple hundred pages. Yeah, you know, it's, it's not uh, a massive undertaking like. You know, uh, you know, uh, Dickens' biography that covers an entire lifespan and you know all, all the uh, autobiographical details that Dickens put into uh, what fifteen major novels, and you know most of those novels are six to eight hundred pages. Yeah, uh, you, know, you just have. Your, your book just really scaled back to what Lovecraft saw in one region, and you do a thorough, uh, you know, uh, research of recreating you know, the trolleys he took to different areas, and you know, like what you were talking about the clam uh, sh- shacks along the shorefront and uh, you know the different routes he would have taken uh, you have uh, reproductions of the postcards of that uh, uh, where's the name of that the castle the Winnie Winnie Kinney Castle that's it Uh, as soon as you said it's on page 33 yeah. So, 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 what? You know, uh, let's look at a landmark like the Winnie Kinney uh, Castle. What, uh, uh, Lovecraft really enjoyed these uh, old homes of uh, New England, the uh, salt box homes, and mm-hmm. uh, but. Uh, uh, this one really the older took, the better, as far as he was concerned. Yeah, and, and uh, what was it about the Winnie Kinney uh, Castle that really captivated him? You have uh, reproductions of his uh, the postcards, uh, yeah, you know, from about the time well, of his visits. Yeah, well, part uh, Winnie, Winnie Kinney is an odd. Well, they're all odd ones if you look long enough, I suppose, but. The problem with Winnie Kinney is that it it wasn't planned. He really didn't know what it was. He wasn't expecting to go there. And they they took him there because they didn't know what else to do with him. They were in Haverhill and Tryout Smith wasn't available. But the picture the postcards are a little uh optimistic. I'll go with that word. In that time period, Winnie Kinney belonged to the city. The uh, the proper the, the it's a two-story fieldstone castle, 
and it was built by a man named James Nichols, who was who was a local doctor who also dabbled in chemistry, and he was working in fertilizers. He was trying to experiment with what chemicals you needed for what plant. So Winnie Kinney was actually built on top of a farm. He had he had purchased this farm so that he could plant or have the local farmer plant vegetables, and he could experiment with the fertilizers. The castle, by this point, belongs to the city. The city had been given the property. In fact, at the bottom of the hill below Winnie Kinney Castle is Canosa Lake, which is the city's major water supply. And the Haverhill, Haverhill really doesn't have a good track record with being given historical buildings to preserve themselves. So it was still in use. You could still go in and, and visit and look out the windows and whatnot. But the city wasn't maintaining it because the water department owned the property. And the water department doesn't do maintenance on buildings. So within probably... Ten years of Lovecraft's visit, the windows had been boarded up, the roof was leaking. By the time you get into the 1960s, they're ready to tear it down. And it was only when a private group, the Winnie Kinney Foundation, took over that it was restored to its former glory. And they don't know what the insides look like that much. They, the insides are completely bare. They use it strictly for, as a function hall. The roof finally is fixed. The, the the mortar is repaired. So when Lovecraft is there, you're starting to see it look a little shabby on the sides. And, you know, the ivy's a little too thick here. Maybe the, the mortar's starting to flake out there. And he thought it really looked like a good place to put a couple of ghosts. And not just any ghosts, but medieval ghosts. Like it's a castle, you gotta have a ghostly knight in armor wandering around. Oh yeah. Now he never went never went anywhere with the story idea, but that's what that's basically what he was saying it looked like to the to uh, Murder David Murder Little in her family. It, okay, it, it's a uh, it's a folly. It's a Victorian folly. Okay, and and, and what was the um, Lord? Dexter, Lord Timothy uh, Dexter, the UP on Lord Timothy Dexter. Yeah, yeah. The 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 photo uh, you have of what the house looked like in uh, uh, around the turn of the 19th century. uh, It's intriguing. There's got to be a lot more to the story that you dug up than most of the. Oh, there is. Okay, lay it on us. (laughs) Timothy Dexter was what we would refer to today as an eccentric. And I say the word eccentric because he had money. He was so eccentric that he could make money off it. He would do things like buy a shipment of bed warmers the the brass pa, the brass the uh, brass pan on the long handle that you would take cinders and embers from your fireplace and you would just 
use the pole and you would warm up your sheets in a colonial mm-hmm. bed. Right. Well, he took a shipment of those and sent them to the Caribbean, where they don't really do a lot of bed warming. But they took the tops off them, and these bed warmers were perfect as ladles for the molasses industry. So he sold them all, and he showed a profit. Are you familiar with the term, bring coals to Newcastle? Yeah. It's an old expression. Newcastle Mm -hmm. was a coal mining community. He sent shipments of coal to Newcastle. But he did it at the same time as the miners went on strike. So he was able to sell coal in a coal town. And again, he made money at it. Now, he's got all this money. The one thing he can't do with it, it turns out, is he can't buy his way into legitimate society. So he decides if they're not going to let him in, he's going to make fun of them. So he has a series of pillars put up in the front of his house. They're all about 10 to 12 feet tall. And on top of each of these pillars is a statue of a famous historical figure, George Washington, the Marquis de Lafayette, um, whoever he happened to think was important at that time. And this picture of the house with these statues in front is, is very famous in New England. In fact, Lovecraft remarks at one point that there was a framed picture of this print in the family house for years, and he remembered it well. Well, by the time he got there, these statues were all gone. Uh, Timothy Dexter died wealthy, but he, you know, for obvious reasons, he didn't keep the statues. So when Lovecraft got there, all it was was this stately building, three-story brick, beautiful um, Federalist-style entryway, it was still the building. You could recognize it. The eagle was still sitting on top of the gazebo at the top. But it was, it's, he was that type of an eccentric. And he wrote a book about basically being Lord Timothy Dexter. He was a lord because he decided he was. He wasn't actually knighted or anything. And the book he wrote was called A Pickle for the Knowing Ones. And it, it's basically faux fake he's the language is very country bumpkin more so than he spoke but he does not use any punctuation in it so it's badly spelled it's phonetic it's vernacular and there's no punctuation in it so what he does when people complain about the book is he has it reprinted and adds a page at the back of nothing but punctuation marks. You know, there's, you know, six lines of commas and six lines of semicolons and some question marks and a few exclamation points and periods and commas. And the instructions were, you guys are so bent out of shape about the punctuation, here you go. Add it where you think you need it. That's that's the type of situation he had with 
Newburyport. And even when he dies, he's buried in old burial hill in Newburyport. And everybody else has these nice, dignified, gray slate slabs. They're very subdued. They're very stately. He's got this big, tall, white marble one. So even at, even at the end, he wasn't going to get these people off the hook. He's he's a charmer. I mean, very famous figure up there. In fact, his book with the punctuation on the last page is still in print. It's more of a tourist thing now, but fascinating item. In fact, Lovecraft saw one of the early editions of it at the Haverhill Public Library. And again, he he understood the joke. The 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 society people in Newburyport apparently didn't catch on to it, but he got it. Lovecraft had a tremendous sense of humor. It's just you have to know where to look to find it. Okay, and you, know, you also bring to our attention in, in your Merrimack Valley book uh, about uh, some smells. Uh, foreshadow oh, yeah. evil. Uh, you, you get uh, Lovecraft uh, working in uh, quantum physics, and you know, Barbara's going to be covering that. What, what next uh, week with uh, Andrew Silverman and whoever that, else joins the, the, uh, the call? But uh, dreams from the but, witch house is quantum physics. I I I mm-hmm. stay away from that stuff. It gives me a headache. Well, it, it's but, it, it, it has become a, a pretty uh, s- significant topic with a, a lot of uh, researchers who appear on. Uh, these internet radio shows, but you, you know, you, you know, you do say that, uh, you know, that uh, Lovecraft is, you know, kind of pioneering the development of those uh, uh, topics like that for uh, literature. Well, yeah, think about the concept of his sunken city, Ryla, Ryla, where the the mighty Cthulhu slumbers. The city is built with non-Euclidean geometry. Please don't ask me what that means because I don't know. But non-Euclidean geometry was a brand new concept at the time. And as, you know, as far as I can tell, it means that the shortest point between, shortest distance between two points may not be a straight line anymore. But it's like, okay, my head hurts again. I'm going to take a nap. But to go back to what you're talking about with the scent, that that doesn't give me as much of a headache. Um, okay. The quote from Lovecraft is, the odor of them is alone sufficient to awake dark speculations. The odor of them, the them in question are old buildings. Uh, specifically, in, he had visited the Paul Revere House in 1923 and then had also been in Haverhill and visited what's called the Ward House. It's a 
two sto- two room building on the property of the Buttonwoods Museum that at the time they thought had been built in 1640. And the continue the quote, and it's so sad that I actually have these quotes memorized at this point. The odor is sufficient to awake dark speculations. I found it most pronounced in the ancient ward house in Haverhill. I've been in the house. I consider it musty. But then again, I'm not a horror writer in my heart. But he very specifically points out the John Ward house, which is, like I said, uh, at the part of the Buttonwoods exhibit, and the, the Paul Revere house. Paul Revere house is 1676. The John Ward house at that point was thought to be the 1640. So he's talking not old buildings. He's talking very old buildings. And his only novel is The Strange Case of Charles Dexter Ward. And that story is just filled with references to scent. And again, he's using it, the scent, as a way of warning the reader something's coming. And he's using words like scent and odor, but he's going into putrescence and fetid. So he's really pulling up that sense of smell, precursor to evil. And it seems to start with those two houses, the Paul Revere and the John Ward. Well, it, you know, it, it, you know, with the yeah. new concepts, like the quantum physics, you know, that that um, he was pioneering, writing about, you know, uh, Lo- Lovecraft was also uh, I- incorporating astronomy. It, um, he he uh, observed the 1932 total eclipse. I mean, there's mm-hmm. you know, just. Uh, it, it, you know the old homes, like all, all all this stuff that you know you're tying together, uh, you know the eclipse and all. Uh, it, it it just really makes for fun reading, and it, you know putting all this together, see how everything Im- impacted this. Um, uh, was he in, in his thirties and forties when he's uh, visiting? The 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 uh, Merrimack Valley on a uh, you know, somewhat regular basis to you know just get away or visit some friends, do some business. Yeah, there's there's a gap in the middle where he uh, gets married and moved to New York, but as soon as that falls apart, he's right back up there. Well, and he's still he, visiting are, the. Uh, it's not just the Merrimack Valley. I mean, he's got favorite locations, and he will go to them. He may starve himself to save the money to get there. And he would normally start in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, go down the coast to Newburyport, and then proceed down the coast further and end up in Salem and Marblehead. Haverhill he didn't get to as often as he did those cities, but there's a lot more antiquity in Salem and Marblehead. And it's the same thing in um, Providence. I mean, 
Charles Dexter Ward is practically a walking tour of Providence, specifically the neighborhoods that Lovecraft visited, lived in, and liked the buildings of. And it's he goes to St. Augustine in 1931. That, that That's kind of the book I'm working on now. So, And he likes it so much, he stops there on the way back heading home. So he 31, he goes to St. Augustine, falls in love with it, goes over to Tampa Bay to visit pulp writer Henry Whitehead goes down to Miami to get the tro- the uh, ferry down to Key West, loves Key West, can't quite make it out to Cuba, where there's a lot of antiquities he wanted to see, goes back to Miami, and then heads back to St. Augustine. The week he is in Miami and Key West, he is living on 10 cents a day worth of food. That's two scoops of ice cream a day. But it meant he could spend an extra day in St. Augustine, or an extra day in Charleston, another favorite city of his. And I think that may be part of the reason why he did not know how sick he was at the end. He was so used to malnutrition that a stomach discomfort was just another symptom. Hmm. But Lovecraft Astronomy, going back to that for a split second, he was so active in astronomy, he put out his own, as a child, astronomy booklet. You know, what was coming up, you could see the declension of the moon versus Jupiter rising and whatever terms were. He was, as a teen, allowed to go into the observatory run by Brown University. So all of that, again, gets mixed into it, which is why you have the, these foreign planets that are sending their aliens to this planet. But it's all details he's picking up and keeping. Going back to Newburyport for a split second, the Clam Flats are known locally as the Joppa Flat. That's a biblical term for an area that where God provided. And apparently Newburyport Clam people were very optimistic. But it wasn't called Joppa Flats by the locals. It was called Joppy, Old Joppy. Lovecraft refers to it as Old Joppy in his letters, which means he has spent enough time talking to the locals that he's picking up on the little clues and the little nuances of being there. And that's the stuff you start seeing in the stories. It's not coincidence that he stays at the character stays at the YMCA in New Report and then goes to the library because that's what Lovecraft did. Lovecraft stayed at YMCA's whenever he could. It was cheap. It was a place with it had a bed and he could drop his valise and go explore. In fact, um, it's kind of funny because some of his letters are complaining about the YMCA's. Apparently, he was a bit of a connoisseur when it came to the YMCA. He thought the one in Newburyport was a little grubby, loved the one up in uh, Portsmouth, but it wasn't always open and available, hated the one in Haverhill because it was an old estate. And, you know, God forbid you have to go from your bed down a flight of stairs and to another room to hit the water 
because you don't have plumbing in all the buildings yet, or you want to go to the read by the fire, you got to go to another building. That that was just completely unacceptable for a YMCA. Who knew? But it, this is actually um, why I'm having trouble, as much as I hate to admit it on the air, with my book on Lovecraft in Florida. Have the same ability to pull it together through the stories. Now, you can take Lovecraft the Merrimack Valley and say, well, this is this story, that then he came here again, and that became that story, and this and that. You can do that up there. You can't do that in Florida because none of the stories actually take place in Florida. There are bits and pieces he uses here and there. So what you have to do is you just do a straightforward travelogue. He went here, stayed two weeks. He saw this, this, and this. Then he went over here, stayed here, and this, this, and this. And it, frankly, it's not that interesting when you don't have an ability to say, and then this story became part of that. And it's it's slowing me down, man. It's slowing me down. So, uh, um, is part of your troubles with the Florida uh, Lovecraft and Florida biography? Uh, uh, all, you know what? This writing project you're working on, and you know the contrasting it with uh, Lovecraft and the Merrimack Valley. It, it, did he not leave as many records about where he was uh, traveling in Florida? Uh, is it you know? You know, with all the letters that you said he wrote, uh, yeah, did he not write that much uh, to other well, people about what he did in Florida? Well, what's the difference? There, well, the, the, you've actually hit it on the right on the head. Florida, he is so conscious of his money. He starts cutting back on food and then cutting back on the letter writing. Now, he never stopped mm. writing letters. He would starve to death before he wouldn't send you a postcard. But the problem is the first trip, problem at all. He's writing to everybody. He's, you know, he's staying with uh, Henry Whitehead. That's free room and board. So he's got the, the resources to send out all these letters. And you see that in he's sending letters to uh, Robert E. Howard about the Gulf of Mexico and on and on and on. The second trip is 1934. And he's staying with Robert Barlow, who is a uh, amazing character. I don't know how I'm going to write him up briefly, but he's a um, teenager who is a book collector. He publishes, he binds his own books. He's a collector, a very eclectic, very brilliant. But he was also, by 1934, one of the most pro or prolific writers of letters to and from Lovecraft. Well, Lovecraft isn't writing him letters in 1934 because he's staying with him. 
So you've lost a major source of your material. And then for some reason, and we don't know why, the letters to his aunt, Lillian and Annie, have disappeared. They just published the letters from Lovecraft to the two aunts, the Lovecraft's letters to family and friends of the family. It's a two-volume set, almost a thousand pages. There, 1934, there's nothing there from the aunts. Without the aunties, you lost the two major travel diary-type letters. So, yeah, you're, 1934, you're working with a postcard he sent Robert Howard here and a letter he sent to August Erlith there and it's you're building it from a lot less material. I have a very detailed list of where he was based on his postcards, but it's nothing compared to what I have for the first trip. And the 1935 trip, it's the same problem. Uh, the One of his aunts has died, and he's staying with Barlow. So there's a less amount of letters to work with to to build up the timeline. I mean, it's fascinating material, but the other problem is you have to talk about people like John Russell and Dudley Newton and Charles Johnston. And if you were to go to a Lovecraft convention and say, hey, what do you know about Dudley Newton? They're going to look at you and go, who? Dudley Newton's the man who first convinced Lovecraft to visit St. Augustine. He stayed in the same hotel as Dudley Newton for two weeks. They traveled across the city for those two weeks together. They had lunch together. They had dinner together. They walked out and watched the sunset. There are only two letters, one page each, that still exist from Dudley Newton. There's no material about him. Nobody knows anything about him. I had to build a complete biography about the man. And I had to do one for Henry Whitehead, who has better documented, but there's still a lot of material about his life people just don't know. So in addition to three trips, I'm doing um, four or five biographical sketches. And somebody like Henry Whitehead or Robert Barlow, who are major figures in amateur press and or the pulp magazines, that's that's kind of trying to put 10 pounds of sausage into a five pound sausage skin. You don't want to write a 10,000 word biographic sketch. You've got to try to get it down to five or 6,000 words. And that's, that can be really tough with somebody like a whitehead. So it's, I mean, it's getting there. I'm hoping to have it out in time for Necronomicon next year. Well, I, That's assuming, of course, there is one. Um, that would be August of next year. Well, it, it, you know, Dave, Dave you, I, I think, um, you, know, it, you know, this smaller biography of just Lovecraft in a small area, it, you, you packed a lot of information into that that book. Uh, yeah, you, know, you, yeah. you know, you 
or, or explaining, you know, the challenges, uh, it, it, you know, fr- it's frustrating, but, you know, we don't know a whole lot uh, uh, about what he's doing in Florida because, you know, uh, you know he's not writing a uh, letter. Uh, there's not as much need to correspond because he's th- there with someone yeah. he's usually writing to. Uh, so uh, well, it's just, uh, you, you, you know, you're giving – yeah, uh, us an explanation for you know why there may be some gaps. Uh, you know that, uh, that has nothing to do with you. It was just co- uh, everything was handled o- over conversations. A good historian takes everything personally, well, but um, there the, the, I, the key I, I wasn't is doing that. Uh, I am. I do it constantly. Um, Lovecraft in the Merrimack Valley works. Because of the format, it is basically taking known material about him. Everybody knows he went up to visit Myrtle Little and putting it mm-hmm. into context. Um, and part of the success of that book is its origin. My mother-in-law, late mother-in-law, was the director of the Haverhill Public Library and back in the glory days, they had a special collections room where the archivist. Well, the archivist was an old buddy of mine. Um, we had known each other for years. I was I had always been a, in that room working on projects of one sort or another. And one day he walks he walks up to me and says, "You've been working on Lovecraft, right?" And I said, uh, "Yeah." He says, "I got people." coming into the library and asking me, they're asking the reference desk, how do I get to this location, try out Smith House? And I don't know, they don't know what he's talking about, so they send him up to me. These people are bothering me. Can you come up with some sort of a little pamphlet or list of places that I can send these people to so they'll get out of my library? That was the origin of the book. It was originally going to be a guide for tourists who are looking for Lovecraft sites. So it kind of reflects that in the composition and why there's an appendix in the back of just sites that are open to the public. Of course, in Florida, where everything is tourism, every site is open to the public. You know, you can't do an appendix of sites open in St. Augustine because you just got to take a map of the city and say, here, if it's on the map, it's open to the public. So that it. The context is the trick, and the example I use for my uh, Florida is he went to Miami, but he did not go to Miami because he wanted to go to Miami. Miami had no interest to him. It was a new city. There was no architectural antiquity, but if you wanted to go to Key West, you had to get a bus from Miami, and then you take the bus down, and it would get on the ferry because the uh, – highway wasn't completed down to Key West yet, and then you would get back on, the bus would then consider down to Key West. He loved Key West. There, It was so far away from the rest of the country that it still had that old tropical feeling. It's, it still does, but there's a lot more commercialization now. He c- stays in Key West. He comes back to Miami. He goes to get on the bus to head back to St. Augustine. And 
he did not plan these trips. A lot of it, lot of it was spur of the moment. He called it adventurous liberation. Well, he's in Miami, and it turns out he's on my he's in Miami, and he's getting there on a Saturday night. The next day, he goes to get the bus. The bus has a different schedule on Sundays. He's stuck in Miami for a day, so he goes out in a glass bottom boat, which was really, really cheap because there had been an explosion in one the year before and nobody wanted to go on the, the boats anymore. And he saw coral reefs. Well, the coral reefs show up in his next story, Shadows Over Innsmouth. And then he goes up the Miami River and he sees a Seminole village. He absolutely doesn't like it. Comes back to Miami. He's very frustrated. He's spending money that he had scheduled for other parts of the project. And he finally, you know, he's stuck there the extra night. He goes up to St. Augustine, but his entire description of that visit to Miami the second time is, is downright unpleasant in spots because he's just so angry and frustrated with himself for missing the, the bus because it was a different schedule. That's the last time he didn't know the schedule or have a copy of it in his hand. This is something all of his correspondents know. He came back from that trip, and after that, he was punctual when it came to travel. No more of this, oh, we'll take the 10 o'clock train, and if we miss it, we'll take the 10.30 train. No siree. Boom, 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 boom. So it, that all makes sense, and it's all important, but it it's not telling much of a narrative. It's just giving you the background as to why Lovecraft could always catch a bus. Nobody's aware of the fact that Lovecraft screwed up his schedule and was stuck in Miami for a day, and that's the reason he took a glass-bottom boat, and that's the reason he knew about a coral reef, and that's why there's a coral reef off of Innsmouth and shadowed over Innsmouth. So there's a little bit to play with there. Okay, well, you know, you're just giving us more you know, uh, realistic looks at the challenges of the writing process. Oh, you know, you, you're doing a great job of presenting the challenges of writing. You know, you have a lot yeah. of information. Uh, you know, for different periods of time. Other times, there are uh, there, there's not as much correspondence for you to extract more information. And you know, yeah. I think you're doing the best you can. And yeah, you know, just to quickly wrap up, yeah, you know, this Lovecraft uh, section. Yeah, you know, you do give us. Uh, 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 you know, this interesting story about the uh, the Shadow Out of Time manuscript was found in Hawaii after being in yep. Mexico City. Uh, okay, that uh, that's some some fascinating information. Uh, yeah, let's hear a little bit about that, then we'll get into uh, a couple samples of sea monsters, and you know we'll kind of wrap the show up in about. Uh, approaching 25 minutes. 
Well, I am about to do the smoothest segue you'll ever see, so follow me on this one. Um, okay. Robert Barlow was named literary executor of Lovecraft's estate when he died in 1937. And he, was, he took a number of objects to uh, give to Brown University and start the Brown University collection which is still the place to go if you want to read Lovecraft's original material. And if you can read his handwriting, more power to you. But Barlow used to be given manuscripts, either as a gift, because he he always collected them. And sometimes he was given a manuscript to just type up so Lovecraft could submit it. If there was one thing in the world Lovecraft hated, it was typing. So if he could, if you owed him money for a revision work, he'd have you work it off typing his manuscript. He just didn't want to deal with it. So Barlow ended up with the manuscript. Is is we don't know whether he, he got it at, out of the estate or if he had been sent it previously. He ended up with the manuscript. Barlow left Florida probably. So probably the manuscript was in Florida at one point too. He went to Kansas City, attended art school, went to Los Angeles, attended college, and then ended up as one of the foremost authorities in Mexico City on the Nahuatl language. He was working as an archaeologist. And when he died, the manuscript had been in the possession of one of his students who kept it. And when she retired, she went to Hawaii. And when she died... It was sent to Brown University. So Providence to Cassia, Florida, to Kansas City, to Los Angeles, to Mexico City, to Hawaii, to back to Providence. It's it's complicated, but it yeah. worked and it, it was one of the, it was the one major manuscript in the his work that was missing. So it was Interesting. It doesn't give us a lot more insight. I mean, it was typed up and everything. There are a few changes in there, but it goes back to Lovecraft again. Lovecraft taking all these little details, shadows out of time, the names from the Haverhill uh, Cemetery. Well, he's in St. Augustine. He's, again, like he learned Old Joppy was the name in Joppa Flats in Newburyport. In St. Augustine, he learned about something that had been forgotten by most people, which is there was a sea monster that washed up on St. Augustine Beach. Mm -hmm. And Lovecraft never mentions it in his letters, but Barlow had just moved to Florida and absolutely hated it. This is a... Uh, let's see, when he moved there and was starting correspondence with Lovecraft, he was 13 or 14. He had been living in D.C. with the galleries and the, the bookstores and the museums, and he moved to Cassia, which has two movie theaters and a hotel where you can rent a hot water bath. And that's the civilization. So he was absolutely depressed. And so Lovecraft tells him, well, look, you're going down to Daytona Beach to, to spend the day on your birthday. Don't forget there was a sea monster there a hundred years ago. 
Maybe you'll get lucky. Maybe the sea monster will show up and eat your relatives. <laughs> and that's how you connect the St. Augustine giant octopus to H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, that was an amazing feat. Thank you. Thank you. I've been working on that one for years. Well, uh, uh, yeah, I think uh, that that's a nightlight exclusive. Okay, so so, so you know we got uh, a sample of um, sea monster washing up on shore at Saint Augustine. Um, you know, in, in your book. Uh, Sun, sand, and sea serpents. Uh, you know, you're also cover uh, one of the lakes. Um, obviously, uh, more in- inland in Florida. Uh, it covers um, it's. The geography of the state, which includes uh, some of these shallow uh, lakes, um, you, know, you present you're presenting a, a lot of animal uh, behaviors, you know, like a migration, and you know, okay, that ex- explains you know uh, what we know now as. Uh, like pod of manatees yeah. uh, that that were seen uh, off the coast in 1890 something or you know whatever, but um, but you know as you look at you know the geography of some of the inland lakes, I, you know they aren't very deep. I, you know, they might be really expansive, but um, you know. Someone like like me is not very tall; could almost wade across it. Uh, but you yeah, know, and there's so, there's a lot of them, and um, yeah, there's more yeah, than there it, used it, to be. Yeah, and, and and people are still seeing something unusual. Uh, uh, dot, you know, uh, com, coming, uh, breaching, whatever, in, in, in a small lake. Uh, okay. Are we dealing with a you know true sea monster, or what kind of animal uh, could be living in a shallow lake? Well, it, it, it's almost a case by case example. Um, for instance, oh, Lake Zephyr on the west coast is um, home to a annual Celtic festival, and they were having trouble coming up with an angle to promote it. So the reporter for the local paper decided they'd have their own Zephy, a Scottish sea monster. And everybody knew it was just a, a marketing ploy. It was it was an in, it was a joke. It, nobody took it seriously. I mean, they uh, they had a Zephy T-shirt made and um, they they ran with it. The problem is the Scottish or the Celtic festival has ended and 
if you look up sea monsters or lake monsters in Florida, you still see the references to the, in the newspapers for, to 2003, 2004, 2005, this Lake Zephyr monster. Well, there never was one, but some of my fellow authors who are not particularly discerning about their source material never bothered to actually look into it. I actually talked to the reporter who made up the monster. He thinks it's hilarious that there are books on sea monsters out there that include the, the Lake Zephyr monster. There was never any chance there would be a Lake Zephyr monster. It's landlocked. It dries out most half of the year, like the smaller lakes do. So in a case like that, no, there's, you know, but you get things like, oh, um, I'm, I'm pulling them out of thin air here. If you've got a favorite, jump right in. Uh, the Lake June monster. It was apparently a giant catfish. And by catfish being giant, I don't mean it was, you know, Godzilla, but it was big by monsters. It was a monster in the sense of the term that they use down here. Florida tourism doesn't, you don't catch a, a big fish. You catch a monster fish or a sea monster. There's a lot of hyperbole going on too. Um, but there are others, uh, Lake Tarpon, it's basically a man-made lake. They have floodgates. They close them during hurricanes when the saltwater tide pushes up. It would actually make the, uh, make the lake salty. And when they lower them to drain them, sometimes something comes in. Um, mm-hmm. Usually it's a manatee. Sometimes it's a dolphin. But they can't stay in that lake. It's deep enough for them to survive. There's enough food, but it gets too cold in the winter. So, mm-hmm. but uh, Lake Tarpon also, for instance, uh, when was it? Uh, about five, six years ago, they pulled a 700-pound American crocodile out of it. Wow. Um in my book, if I see that swimming in a lake, I'm going to call it a sea monster. <laughs> I don't blame you. But you, you, you know, you also have examples of, you know, where you get, uh, you know, where the creeks are kind of draining out into the ocean, and, and you get. Yeah, you know, the brackish water with uh, yeah. where the uh, salt and uh, fresh water meet. Um, so, so you get these kind of like uh, sightings there of uh, a- animals that can live um, waters. Uh, what what can we learn from an example like that uh, of? Uh, well, you know, the, the, a fish or a, a mammal. You see a lot of those on what's called the Treasure Coast of Florida. That is, um, okay. uh, actually, it's just north of me. There's some some people include Palm Beach County, but it's 
Indian River, St. Lucie, and it's uh, St. in Martin County. And it's it's basically a c- communities along the coast and then swamp. And it's it's the head of the St. John's River, and it's just a marshy mm-hmm. area. Well, and yeah, right. uh, it, it, it is brackish, and that does narrow down the number of critters. But what makes the swamp serpents, for lack of a better term, interesting is that they're being found out of the water. Um, there's a mm. very famous one down here um, on the Treasure Coast. It's um, Indian River. Indian River's got a whole set of weird... And I may not be talking just about sea serpents, but that's a different story. About 1881, um, a fellow's daughter eloped, which did not make him happy. They went trying to track her down, and they were heading down to Saint uh, to Lake Worth. And this is the old Lake Worth, not the current Lake Worth. This is back when Lake Worth was actually a lake and was actually fresh water, too, for that matter. And... They crawling out through the underbrush. It was a big green and black snake serpent thingy. I'm being very specific here because they were. It was about 30 feet long. And uh, they called the width a small nail keg. And I had to build an entire (laughs) database on how to convert kegs. That, so that's about 10 to 12 inches around. So it it is not somebody mistaking an anaconda, which probably wouldn't have been in that area in 1880s. Uh, they're not. It's it's on land, heading back into swamps. It is 30 feet long. That is that is not a happy thing. And. I don't know what it is. If it was just one encounter, I'd say, okay, that is a somebody saw a snake and exaggerated. But they aren't the only one. They had an they had one in the middle of the Saint John's River four years later, which was a serpent. They had one in uh eighteen ninety five. Again in Titusville, you had some sort of a weird critter in the uh, Lake Okeechobee, which again is ne- from Lake Okeechobee to the sw- shore is swamp, so it's the same biome. And this mm-hmm. is again a very long snake, but this one particularly had horns and hmm. 25 to 30 feet. 10 to 12 inches diameter. It's exactly the, the what they're describing earlier in the 1881. Uh, he he just specifically noted that the mouth had barbels like a, a catfish. But they don't know what it is. Now, the uh, mid-woodland period Indians up and down... Uh, all over Florida, up into the Carolinas, they had a the same culture, and there is a horned serpent motif among the Indians, and so that was his first thought. Mm-hmm. And it's got a it's a great horned serpent, 
and it's an iconography you see up and down the coast. I mean, there are examples of that all the way up in Maine. So it's, again, it's another oddball one. And it's very specific to that area. So I don't know if it's a species or if it's just I'm missing something very obvious. But out of the entire book, it's the only area of the, where I can look at it and go, I have no clue as to what I am seeing or de- they're describing. This is completely new to me. And as we just talked about very early on, you know how I hate not knowing. And I, that one completely stymies me. Of course, now the other angle to that is that this is the same body of water, the St. John's, that travels 300 miles north. And that's where you get things like the St. Um, John's River pinky. Monster, the, the Pinky, and all these other critters. So there's a lot of history in that river for sea monsters, but none of them are 30-foot-long snakes with 10, 12-inch diameters. Hmm. Now, if you... Now I'm going to I'm going to take a sideways step here. If you look okay. at sea monsters that are obviously not identifiable. I'm not talking about whales, I'm not talking about orcas, I'm not talking about dolphins in a row. I'm talking about ships that are describing sea monsters. They are describing the same basic critter. 100 feet long, 50 feet for a young one. 100 feet long, black, coiled in the water. The best I've come up with, and I'm not necessarily going to pick this hill to die on, is that it is some sort of an eel. Eels spend their life in salt water and then go into fresh water to spawn. It's not 100 feet long. So the question is, has modern ship noise and traffic destroyed a species of eel that was 100 feet long that used to come into the swamps of Florida to spawn and then go back out in the ocean? Because you see this 100-foot sea monster motif all the way up and down the coast. You see it in South America, Central America, Florida, the Caribbean, but you also see it up into the Carolinas and Virginia and up into New England and the Maritimes. And if you, uh, that does not make sense unless they're in the Gulf Stream and trying and staying warm because that is such a wide variety of temperatures for any animal that it, it doesn't make sense. So, okay. I don't uh, know what uh, to tell you. I don't know. It's, uh, it could be a real cryptid. I'd, uh, I, like you said, cha- uh, industrialization, modernization has changed uh, migration habits. I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, you know, uh, I don't, I don't know with. We, we can have a mysterious caller join within the next 
three, four minutes we have to answer that question, but you never know. Um, But, you know, you're, uh, you know, speaking of these uh, differences in temperatures, you're you're working on your Northern Sea Monsters book. Uh, Is there a, you know, time when you think it's going to be available i'm, I'm looking you know, you're, you're always welcome to come back and discuss that one well you you know how to get a hold of me anytime you need me um that book is um in progress it's really not moving really fast because we really haven't needed to um it's a it's a it's a little more complicated because you've got the big name monsters up there. You've got the Lake Champlain monster. You've got the Gloucester Harbor Rockport Cape Ann monster. You've got uh, Chessie in the Chesapeake Bay. You've got the Casco mm-hmm. Bay Sea monster, and that's just the big ones. That's not including the the little stories that show up all the time. You know, this ship saw this, that ship saw that, so. There's there's some really interesting material, and it, it's going to take some time to sort through it. And I can't I can't wait to play with it, but it's it's not on the short list for next year. Okay. Well, it okay. We're uh, down to uh, about three minutes. Um, I just want to th- thank you, uh, Dave, for uh, being our guest tonight sorry about the little tech issue where both of us disappeared there for a minute but um yeah can can you give um everyone your website any other contact information or if you happen to have a rare appearance coming rare up indeed. You know, just, yeah well you, my, uh, website. You, can, you can always get hold of me through my website, which is goudsward.com, G-O-U-D-S-W-A-R-D.com. That'll the main page will give you my brother Scott, the horror writer, and my page. You just click on the right image and boom, you'll know it's me. The I do actually have an event coming up. And that is um the Lovecraft in the Merrimack Valley. I'm doing it as a um a full hour zoom presentation and that'll be at the end of the month it's uh october 22nd at 6 30 p.m you do have to pre-register with the haverhill historical society uh just go to their website which is buttonwoods.org and click on events and just Find the calendar listing for it and click on it, and it will give you a description of it. And at the bottom of that will be the link. You click on the link, and Google will send you the access URL. But yeah, okay. that is, that is indeed one of the few rare programs I'm doing right now. Okay, well, good. I'm glad you got that out there. Uh, we're just about out of time. You know, Barbara, thanks for producing. Uh, tonight's show, um, D- Davis. Want to thank you again. Hey, uh, let's see. I think uh, Ar- Arlen's doing a show tomorrow night. I got uh, a whole bunch of great shows lined up. Uh, Andrew Silverman, Mark Dewiziak next uh, next week. Um, you know, just keep checking back 
uh, at Barbara's website for our Halloween month. Got some great guests. Um, Thank you again, and we'll see everyone tomorrow.